All right. Welcome, listeners, to episode 49 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sittman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my great friend, Sam Etherbell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. I'm really excited for this episode. Me too. For a change of pace, we're excited for an episode <laughs> of the podcast. I know. Most episodes I hate, but this one I'm really <laughs> excited for. And it's because we had a really superb guest. It was really wonderful to talk with her. Yeah. Our guest was Michelle Nickerson, who is an associate professor of history at Loyola University Chicago, where she teaches courses on the history of women and gender, U.S. politics, social movements, cities and suburbs, and American religion. We had her on to talk about her great book, kind of a, I think, a, you know, landmark book in conservative historiography, Mothers of Conservatism, Women in the Post-War Right, which was published in 2012 by Princeton University Press. And she also co-authored a volume of essays titled Sunbelt Rising, The Politics of Place, Space, and Region with University of Pennsylvania Press. Yeah. She was terrific. She really was. We've both like had this book for a long time. We flipped through it before. We decided that we absolutely had to do an episode on it once we read it more thoroughly. <laughs> and what it really is and what we get into in the episode is it's, it's a social history of women on the right. So whereas a lot of our episodes are more focused on intellectuals and on the ideas, this, this, this episode is really focused on activists and partic- in particular activist women and what activist women brought to post-war conservatism. From their own kind of yes. gender experience, their um, experience in the home and in work and in their in their caregiving and family and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Really a fascinating book. And it's it's really, you know, the heart of it is Southern California, like so many of our stories, we're going back to California, yeah. Southern California, metropolitan uh, Los Angeles area, Pasadena in the 1940s and 50s. Yes. A lot of her book, was, or at least a substantial part of it, is informed by her oral histories. Yes. Uh, interviews she did with some of these women or their daughters, people they knew. And so that's a f- she brings in some of that in the conversation. And it's really fascinating. Absolutely. And although the book is focused on the 40s and 50s in, in the LA area, she there's, a, there's a, a portion of our conversation and also a portion of the book that sort of sets the stage for what kinds of activism women were doing in the preceding decades, mm-hmm. in, the thir- in the 20s and 30s in particular, um, both on the left and the right. But that's a part of the conversation too. Yes. And one of the things that I was, when I was listening back to the conversation, I didn't ever mention, but is really important in the book, is about how the rise of a welfare state in the 1930s is also produced this backlash because it was decentering the patriarchal family and decentering the the mothering role in this particular way. And I think that that can't be lost in, in thinking about this stuff. Yes. So we're not only going back to California, we're going back, as you might expect, to the New Deal. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, shall we get some housekeeping? Yes. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, they also provide digital subscriptions if you subscribe for $10 a month or more on our Patreon, which you can do at patreon.com. For $5 a month, you can get access to all of our bonus episodes, and we have a lot of episodes in the hopper. Yes, we do. And as always, we want to thank our intrepid producer, Jesse Brenneman, uh, at his compound in Montana. <laughs> and uh, we always, always want to thank Will Epstein, who does the music for the podcast. Yes. As always, do consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. That is helpful. And if there's nothing else, let's get to it. Yes. Here's our interview with Michelle Nickerson. Let's get started. Welcome to Know Your Enemy, Michelle Nickerson. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. And yourself? 
Uh, not too bad. We're here to talk about your great book, Mothers of Conservatism, Women in the Postwar Right. It was published in 2012 by Princeton University Press. And it's, I, I think, really you know, a standout volume in the historiography of the right. It was fascinating to read. And I thought before we really dove into some of the particulars of the characters you introduce us to, the wild bookstores, <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Americanism centers, all this percolating really in Southern California, Pasadena, metropolitan Los Angeles. That's really the site of this book. But before we get to that, I was thinking about as we were preparing, Alan Brinkley's famous 1994 article, The Problem of American Conservatism in the American Historical Review, it starts with a very provocative claim, which is that American conservatism has been something of an orphan in historical scholarship. And I thought, women in conservatism, women on the right is an orphan of an orphan. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And so when you were starting this project, I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about how you lit on this particular project and kind of how it fit into what you were reading about the right, you know, what the state of historical scholarship was on the right. This is a, a, felt like a very fresh, original project. And I just wondered how you came to this. So I came to this as a graduate student in American studies at Yale University. So this was my dissertation. And I came to graduate school to write something totally different. Mm. <laughs> I thought I was going to be either a colonial historian, so early America. Then I, I thought I was going to write about Alaska. It's kind of why I was recruited. But then I was really politicized as a graduate student. I joined the graduate student union at Yale. GISO. GISO, yeah. I was around a lot of people who were not just thinking about politics and political history, but actually doing it. And it was very exciting to me. At the same time, you know, we were in the midst of this conservative revolution. And needless to say, until I encountered Alan Brinkley, I wasn't reading about it in the text that I encountered in my classroom. And so I remember distinctly when I actually wrote an entire proposal on environmental history of Alaska, and I was about to go in and defend it with my committee. And I went into my advisor's office. I said, I just, I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I want to write about right-wing women. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And that came out of uh, a reading list that for my exams, where I, I did a field in political history. And um, that's where I encountered the Brinkley article. And I also read um, a book called Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood by Kristen Luker. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And then um, also with that professor that I did p political history with, I had written a research paper on the Alaska mental health bill. Which is you, just for listeners, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but there's a whole chapter involving Alaska. <laughs> and how like the mental health establishment became the target of some of this right-wing activism by women. Exactly. I thought when I started that project, I was writing about Alaska. Hmm. And as I was digging in, I realized this is not about Alaska. This is about these housewives, right? mainly in California, who are opposed to this bill. And it's a conspiracy theory. And I had no idea what to do with it at that point. All I knew is I wanted to dig in. And um, mm -hmm. fortunately, my advisor was like, well, this is how it works. This is why you're here. So we'll figure out how to write about conservative women. 
Cool. And so he actually told me to look at California because he was from California and he remembers living through the Goldwater era there. Yes. You know, just uh, to give a little more background, one claim that Alan Brinkley makes in this famous article was that basically the the place of the right of conservatives in historiography, American political historiography the last few decades, it didn't have the place in the historical profession and in the scholarship that its political importance would seem to merit. Right. Brinkley's piece was from 1994, as we mentioned. And I wondered if by the time you were working on your project in graduate school, your dissertation that became this book, was that changing at all? Because now it seems like it's a flourishing subfield oh, yeah. in a way. It's, it's, it's so very robust. different. And kind of where was your project in that trajectory? It was in a very early part of that trajectory. And so when I started writing the dissertation, there really wasn't a whole lot out there, not enough to really constitute the historiography that Kim Phillips Fine would eventually write about. And there certainly wasn't barely anything on conservative women. Right. So um, it was very exciting. And I had to find my community of scholars mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't really um, a niche at Yale. I wasn't uh-huh. with working with a whole bunch of people who were examining conservatism under, right. you know, the same advisor. And that was that was pretty interesting and fun. And it has since grown in ways that I, you know, I couldn't have imagined. I feel like it, in a way, it, it's so funny. I had an editor ask me, I don't know, maybe a year or two after my book came out, you know, what did I think was coming in the future? Who should they talk to? He said, because I just, you know, I, I can't believe this. He's like, this is going to burn out. Like, I think it's just about everything out there on conservatism is already written. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. I know. Wow. And I didn't know I didn't have a response to that. Yeah. It, it kind of scared me. Right. But of course, I have no reason to be scared. Yeah. So for better or for worse, there was always going to be a lot more to say about conservatism in America. Yes. One of the things that really was eye opening in the beginning of your book is how you situate this transition in the sort of social history of women's activism in America mm-hmm. from the sort of middle class reformer era, which tended to be more sort of identified with the noblesse oblige or sort of at least a middle class identity, caring for the needy, caring for maybe the poor and maybe immigrants, the suffrage movement to this thing that became more associated with what you term housewife populism. And maybe for the, for our listeners, because I think some of our listeners kind of know where this conversation is going, you know, to kind mm-hmm. of the little old ladies in white tennis shoes of, <laughs> sure. of, the, John, of the John Birch Society. But they might mm-hmm. not know about where women's political activism on the left and right kind of was before the emergence of a post-war women's political right. Well, first of all, I'll point out as you notice in the book, that the word conservative doesn't become what we use it for today until the end of the 1950s, really. Right. But the kind of activism on the right, uh, kind of the nationalistic work of of women activists, really dates back to the 1920s, mm-hmm. that period in, in the aftermath of World War One and the emergence of patriotic organizations and the red hunting that women were doing right. back then. So women were not just joining organizations. It was at that point that they came to see communism as a threat to the family. Right. And they saw the state as 
something that menaced private life, community life, and family life, and that they as women had a job to protect their families. And that meant using clubs to investigate communism. Right. So it starts with the first Red Scare. It continues into the 1930s, the Depression era. It changes, however. Women on the right become opposed to U.S. entry into World War II. Right. And also U.S. participation in what becomes the United Nations. Right. And so it becomes a very anti-internationalist movement of women. Yeah. This is also where we see the transition you just mentioned in the 1930s, when women begin to articulate political position that is anti-statist and populist. Hmm. They're picking up on the language of populist opponents of Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s to argue that their role as women is to fight not just the state, but to look out for their own, I guess yeah. is the best way that I would put it. Whereas in the in the earlier period, maternalism was the way that women argued they belonged in politics is to take care of the nation, right. especially those who are disadvantaged. But now women are, by the 30s, women start arguing that they are beleaguered, their families, their communities are under threat. They see themselves as people who are in danger from elites in government and in academia, and then ultimately that changes then in the 50s to target the civil rights movement, people who they identify as dangerous thought leaders. Right. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about that change of sort of class subjectivity that's being articulated by the nascent conservative women, but who are really at this point just sort of anti-communists and individualists, is that they figure their targets of their criticism on the left as they tend to be middle and upper class women, obviously not just women, but some of some of the rhetoric is focused on these middle and upper class women who are taken in by radical politics, by left-wing politics, whereas they, ordinary women, housewives, and sort of, you know, sort of at least in their self-concept and the way they project their class identity, more ordinary women aren't being taken in by these sort of fancy foreign ideas. Is that part of it? Yes. I would add that these women are also hyper-nationalist and prone to conspiracy theories about like the, the Roosevelt government of the New Deal era. Right. And women who would describe themselves as middle class or upper class, they were prone to describing themselves as ordinary housewives. And it was a way of criticizing women reformers right. who they thought were being brainwashed. Right. So they imagine themselves as being more grounded, closer to what was happening in the everyday lives of people. They saw themselves as being more in touch with children's lives. Uh, they saw themselves as more embedded in their communities and that uh, progressives, they thought, were just out of touch. You know, their heads were in the ivory tower. Right. I was fascinated by 
early on the appearance of Jane Addams in the book, uh, because one of, one of my teachers in grad school was Jean Bethke Elstein, who wrote a book on Jane Addams and I think edited a volume of her writings. And so I was kind of hoping Jane Addams would make an appearance, and, and she does. And I think she kind of is, you know, maybe representative in some ways of the maternalism you describe. And I just wondered before we kind of move on, could you just say a little more for listeners, like what that maternalism meant, like maybe a practical example, like what Jane Addams was up to at Hall House and what the critique of that style of uplift came to be. So, you know, Jane Addams establishes a settlement house in the 1890s in Chicago that becomes a model for similar institutions around the nation. Hull House eventually occupied an entire city block, and it was there to provide services and education to the immigrant population in its neighborhood. Women like Jane Addams lived on the second floor, and they were many of them trained as social workers. And then they would, on the first floor of the building, run kindergartens, I guess you would call it maternal health classes, and all kinds of things that they thought that the disadvantaged newcomers to their neighborhood needed. And it was criticized, even in its day, by people who didn't think that they understood the needs of the community, that they themselves were trying to assimilate people in ways that they didn't want to be assimilated, aka Catholics, who were not interested in reading the King James Bible and <laughs> not interested in the, you know, the kind of Protestant approach to this uplift. Right. So what's interesting t- in terms of what happens is my advisor on the book, uh, Linda Gordon at Princeton University Press, really, she was on me to call my subjects of the 30s forward to call them maternalist because they were doing everything like Jane Addams in the name of motherhood, uh-huh. right? That they saw themselves and their contribution to society through their womanhood and what they thought was natural to women. And yeah, mm-hmm. in that respect, it's it's true. There's something maternal about their political consciousness. Right. But I argued that there was a huge break in this um, political tradition in the 1930s. Hmm. I wanted to ask about Adams in particular, because I think you can see in the examples you gave, when you talk about the, the populist housewives or housewife populism that would kind of emerge in the 30s and continuing forward, when you say they're very embedded in communities, they view themselves as being very much within communities. I think you can see someone, just how you describe the work of Hall House, how at, at that point, someone like Jane Adams w- was almost like an intermediary, right? right? Between the state and these oh, yeah. these new, these communities, whether they're immigrant communities or poor communities, poor communities, whatever it might be, that that kind of role versus the more embedded internal to the communities that you're describing. That is one of the big shifts you play off in the book. Right. Right. I think in terms of what changes in the United States as the result of the Great Depression, it's what you just identified. I should point out, it wasn't just these women on the right. There was right. an extensive tradition of women providing for and working in their communities to try and keep them alive in the 30s. If you think about the meat strikes and the anti-eviction demonstrations. Labor movements, ladies' garment workers' unions. Yeah, but really 
what I think happens in the 30s is that there is a kind of a real change in how women come to see maternal uh, importance in society and women's roles as mothers in their families, in their communities, struggling to advocate on behalf of their interests. Right. Right. So, so whether left or right in a way, or, you know, whatever the political valence of the activism, you're kind of saying in the thirties, the role of protector kind of came to the fore, which makes sense, right? If, if you're in the midst of the great Mm -hmm. depression, like just keeping things together, keeping families together, keeping households together, keeping people fed and Mm -hmm. clothed becomes an urgent task in ways that at other points in history, maybe it's not quite the same, at least not to that degree of extremity. Mm -hmm. So I think that makes sense. Yeah. I'm sure that in previous generations, women felt this way too, but there's a way in which it has more traction in the depression era. It, It tends to resonate more. Women can assert themselves more when they assume that political stance. I mean, and it's true that like populism is the in a sort of ghostly replay of the populist movement, it's back in the public consciousness in such a, a huge way in this mm-hmm. moment where everyone, whether they're left or right, they want to be an ordinary. Yeah. You know, this is the era of the popular front on the left, the era mm-hmm. the era of even the Communist Party saying that communism is the new Americanism. These sort of payments to the common man, the common woman are so profound. And it's something that you actually note in the book somewhere that sort of populism as a particular American political idiom, it just returns and it returns and it returns. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't have a particular left or right valence, not always. I mean, he has one in particular moments, but across history, it doesn't necessarily. Um, And so if you're going to sort of capture the public imagination in the 1930s, whether you're a labor activist or you're one of these these America First or women, yeah. the mothers' movement. Um, you're going to be describing yourself as ordinary, common, and and sort of in touch with the real American soul. Not only that, they assumed these kind of folksy ways that right. you know that their mothers probably didn't raise them with. Right, especially if they were middle class. Right, exactly. They had to speak like they were not from the middle class in just. I think you said it pretty well, in a different idiom that really belied the extent to which they were from prosperous families. There are several things that we're going to address on this episode that I think have been sort of small lacunae in our sort of story we've been telling about the right, not least of which is the incredibly important role of activist women. But another thing is the America First movement. We've alluded Mm -hmm. to it. We've talked about it. You know, we've done stuff about Buckley's dalliance with America First when he was a young man, our listeners will be generally aware of it as, you know, the movement against American involvement in World War II. But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the specific role of women in the America First movement. So this is really interesting. I'm sure you know that the America First Committee was established before U.S. entry into World War II, and it featured people like Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford, people who already had a reputation for anti-Semitism and anti-internationalism. But then they disbanded after Pearl Harbor. That was the end of the America First Committee. Right. Because you couldn't be a patriot anymore if you were saying no to the war. Or, I mean, to be more frank, you couldn't be a patriot that people were going to buy cars from. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know, so if you wanted to continue 
to influence society as Henry Ford or Charles Lindbergh or whoever, you had to throw your support behind the United States. But women, no, not so much. They didn't have to. And so the America First movement becomes a women's movement, otherwise known as the mother's movement. Wow. And other scholars like Laura McEnany and um, Glenn Jeansom have done a far better job of digging into that movement of women, how many and how widespread they were around the country. They maintained this drumbeat of criticism against U.S. entry into the war, which then transitioned into anti-internationalist criticism of the United Nations. And right. it was, in many instances, very overtly anti-Semitic. You talk a good deal about Elizabeth Dilling's role. Yes. The Roosevelt Red Record um, is is what she wrote. The Jew deal. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Oof. I mean, just so that we don't just throw it out there without addressing it, how was the anti-Semitism part of this ideology? How did they see the Jew as sort of functioning in this constellation of enemies? Jews were imagined to be the moneyed elite kind of a secretive international religious organization who controlled the financial establishment. So they circulated over the course of decades, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which argued that there was this small conspiracy of Jews that operated internationally to control the world of finance. Elizabeth Dilling, of course, wrote the, uh, the octopus. Yes. So, and yes, people read Dilling, but um, they also listened to Father Charles Coughlin, the radio priest who circulated these ideas. And so they saw the Roosevelt administration, which of course included Bernard Baruch, Mm -hmm. as somehow uh, part of this conspiracy of global financial elites that was somehow unduly influenced by Jews. Right. To keep our eyes on the uh, specifically like the the women's political consciousness mm-hmm. and subjectivity that's important, even as we're talking about America first, this anti-radicalism, anti-communism and the nationalism. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that, I, that struck me in your book is how much emphasis you find uh, these activists were placing on the fact that because they were women, because they were housewives, because they were at home, because mm-hmm. they weren't working in the way that, that their husbands were working, they had sort of eyes on the scene, eyes on the community. Um, mm-hmm. that, and they had the time to uh, really read and study the mm-hmm. radicals, under, really get a sense of what these people, what makes them tick, and really, and really read into the sort of literature of communism, you know, to, ha- to have the, the time and space to do this, because, of course, our poor husbands have to go out there and work, and we're not doing yeah. anything at home, which, of course, is not also true for m- many women. Um, yeah. But it's never incidental no. that they're housewives. It's because we're housewives that we can see what's going on. It was that sensibility that I've, I call women just know that I discovered in my interviews. So I did oral histories with about 30 women. And what happens with this, this kind of research is, you know, you go in there thinking you're going to ask about certain things and get certain kinds of information, but then your interview subjects <laughs> keep returning it to their own, like what they think is important. Right. And so yeah. I just realized like they just won't stop talking about schools. Mm. And I was like, why, you know, what's the big deal here? And so 
that's when I, I really, for the first time, saw this, this sensibility and understanding of uh, this, the skills and the instincts, because they really did see it as kind of a, a female instinct that they brought to anti-communism, that they could literally see it better. Right. That mm-hmm. this is kind of a, a metaphor. So like in my household, there's men folk in here who can never find anything. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Uh, so the way they would talk about it, it would be like, oh, geez, you know, it's like women are more patient, more attuned. So when something's not right, the men are just not going to see it. They're too busy with their other stuff. The women, the women are listening. Right. They felt like they had their ears to the ground. Therefore, J. Edgar Hoover was telling them, look, the communists, they're all over the place. They're in your communities. Right. I need your help to find them. He tells them directly in his his writing. (laughs) And so they're like, oh, yeah, okay. So, you know, we're going to form these, they call them patriotic organizations, and we're going to find them. And the difference between the earlier period when you're right, they were studying and doing research and red hunting. Putting out these pamphlets about, you know, the ideologies of the left and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Like that work first happened with the first Red Scare. Right. But what's different now is this is not the DAR going after Jane Addams. Daughters of the American Revolution. Right. The Daughters of the American. They're not developing a spider web chart linking, (laughs) you know, reformers in the settlement house movement with, you know, the Russian Revolution. Now in the 50s, it's housewives that are looking in their own communities. Right. And uh-huh. so they're doing this research right. because they're trying to find the connections that they're sure are there between their school superintendent right. and the teachers in their children's classroom, what connects them to communism. Right. So it goes from this national conspiracy to this, this thing has its hooks in our local community, in our most intimate lives. Right. And what I found when I was doing my research is they wouldn't describe themselves as women's organizations. Mm -hmm. They would be like, we're a parent's organization. Yeah, we have men in the Community Development Council, but we do all the work. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. You know, I don't want to uh, affirm any gender stereotypes, but sometimes I do go home, Michelle, and my mom will say, what's wrong? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I do. I do wonder sometimes, you know, about the uh, that sense uh, of paying attention and being in tune. It also relates to the things, Michelle, you just said about we actually did all the work. I mean, I used to be a very active leftist activist Uh and. There has never been an activist group I have been involved with where it was not the case that men did a lot of talking and women did a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. No, what's interesting. Okay. So the professor in me would would tell you, if you were my students, that gender assumptions run deep. Indeed. Indeed. Well, since we're kind of, you know, creeping forward in time, I wanted to say most of our conversation so far has been about your first chapter. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So just to kind of situate listeners, uh, you know, you give this wonderful kind of context that the, the women activists, the the women in the of the post-war right, you know, that tradition of activism didn't come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't spring out of nothing. 
and you but you know chart this this shift or multiple shifts even but one thing i wanted to ask kind of as were since we emphasized the way like the great depression spurred a kind of new mode of activism new rhetoric you know new concepts a, a protector more than maternalism or interpreting maternalism as protection one thing i was wondering was i think you know some of what we've said listeners will start to pick up on the way women became important to the post-war right. Mm -hmm. But before we sort of specify some of that, what was the place of women, not in the post-war right, but in post-war America? Because we start in California in the 1940s in chapter two of your Mm -hmm. book, really. And, you know, that's a really interesting time period and an interesting place to be. And we Mm -hmm. return to California again and again in the show, you know, the post-war boom, suburbia, defense money, people coming into California, immigrants even. You know, so before the we get to some of the contributions to the women of the post-war right, what context were they operating in more broadly in post-war America that might have shaped their activism in the way the Great Depression shaped an earlier generation? Okay, if I had to boil this down, I would say opportunity, the explosion of all kinds of opportunities that were created, not just by the economic boom, but by a new way of of seeing what could be done in society. The sense that we can do something here, like that we have the power to improve our society and and to change things. And women, uh, even though there is this weird post-war, you might call it an ideology of of motherhood that celebrates women at home, really, Women are, are all over these changes that are happening in the South and the West and the East. Women are actually entering the workforce in droves, right. contrary to the way we think of the 1950s, especially women who are married. Their kids go off to school and they want to get jobs. They want to do things. And so the way I would put this in relation to the housewives of California is that they operated in a world where they saw great things happening. They saw developments in aerospace and technology and uh, the suburban real estate boom. They're there where it's happening. Their husbands are doing the work or they are kind of power professionals that are on the outskirts of this. And they themselves are smart. Many of them have at least some college education and they're ready to put it to work. One of the things that your book does such a good job of sort of identifying is the way that on the right, perhaps especially if they're going to be engaged in politics, the path to participating in that new opening of opportunities to have it put your imprint on the world is going to be through the performance of this domesticity, which has mm-hmm. become a kind of cultural touchstone of the 1950s. And I, I, you have a great line in the book where you say, describing the activists who are are continuing to do the sorts of work we've been describing in a slightly different emphasis, you say, activists opted increasingly to utilize their formica kitchen tables, polyester living room sectionals, and outdoor patio furniture for organizing slash entertaining. It's something that came through in the Hulu show about Phyllis Schlafly with Kate Blanchett, where Mm -hmm. she is this extraordinarily competent brilliant woman who's got this whole background and knowledge of geopolitics 
end nuclear policy, but she identifies at a particular moment that the, her way into being a leader in, a conser- in the conservative movement is by mm-hmm. performing her role as a wife, overperforming it in some ways. You know, that, that sort of the, the scenes where she will give a speech and just to piss off the, the, the libs, um, she'll say, <laughs> I'm so glad that my husband has allowed me to give this speech today. Um, <laughs> right. Of course, that's yeah. a slightly later era. But you see the beginnings of it in the 1950s when these women who are engaged in the post-war conservative movement play the role of mother, wife, and host, even as they are actually using that performance to engage in politics in an, in an unprecedented way. That and, and the, the people operating behind the scenes. Right. That they're making it all happen while other people are out front as spokespeople. And they would say that they were happy to do that. Right. Well, I wanted to, to, to we should really get down to some of you know what you lay out in the second chapter and then you know work through some of the specifics of the rest of the book. I, I thought one way to do it would just be to read from uh, the beginning of your second chapter. You write this, women not only participated in the grassroots conservative movement, they contributed ways of seeing protesting and writing that we can study through the discursive imprints they left. The progressive school administrator, the guileless bridge-playing housewife, and the duped liberal PTA member all emerged from the 1950s as representatives of political danger that taught conservatives not only about the so-called enemy, but about themselves, their ideals, principles, and duties. What were the ways of seeing protesting and writing that we can study. What were they up to? The sure. women in post-war Los Angeles, the groups they were in, the organizations they founded, their activities. Well, I'll talk about my three favorite that I looked at. Number one, uh, the newsletter writers. So <laughs> it was popular to have a mimeograph machine at your disposal, perhaps in your garage uh-huh. or something. Yeah. And this is how they circulated conspiracy theories for not a whole lot of money. It was almost like their version of social media, where instead of bragging about how many likes you have or followers, you would brag about how many subscribers, right? Or (laughs) how many people you were sending your newsletter Uh to. Just for our younger listeners, a mimeograph machine is like a proto photocopier Right, that would turn out. Was it like the purple ink? Yes. I still have some. My my copy of Wilmore Kendall's unpublished uh, manuscript is mimeographed, so it's like this weird purple ink. Whoa! You know, a little blurry. They could essentially copy stuff at home fast. <laughs> yeah, fast. It was mechanical. It had this big drum that you would turn, and yeah, <laughs> your fingers would get blue. <laughs> but what it meant is that they could have these little printing presses in their own homes. Then they could mobilize their friends, also their Christmas card lists, to start this branching out of ideas. And then people would subscribe to newsletter writers in other parts of the country. It's how they connected nationally to each other through the circulation of these newsletters. Also, Mm -hmm. they saw this as the alternative media. Right. This was the the non-mainstream news. This is like the non-experts where you're going to get the real story. It would help people do their own research. <laughs> yes. So then the second type of medium that I found or, or way of organizing was the patriotic bookstores, which they were these little, I would say mom and pop operations, but really mom operations. There were some men who did this, but really it was mostly women would open storefronts where they would sell and or circulate 
conservative literature, the, the kinds of things that they thought people should be reading. And they saw themselves as a counterforce to radical bookstores. And um, it's where they would circulate some of these newsletters. And they they wanted to get kids in there to have, you know, the resources for their patriotic education. And they spread all over the metro region. They didn't last very long, partly because the John Birch Society started opening their own bookstores. But they were quite a force, and they would also organize events. Um, they became a clearinghouse, kind of a community center for what becomes a real movement. So it's where you could find the movement in space, you know, not just at people's homes, but at these bookstores. And I guess the third way in which women would contribute would be to develop their own research expertise. So uh, they would go on speaking tours. Some of them became known for a particular specialized knowledge of like UNESCO. So for example, I read about Florence Fowler Lyons, who she literally like built a, a speaking career criticizing UNESCO as being this danger to children. And she had enough of a reputation that McCarthy <laughs> hired her to do some research on the government printing office. And so she would talk to community groups and testify in hearings, always with a stack of books next to her. The idea being like, we have done our research. Some of them actually published their own books with the, the conservative publishing houses that were opening at that time. And then, oh yeah, one more type of organizing would be the big anti-communism rallies that were happening in stadiums, like the Fred Schwartz rallies, where women would be there as speakers. And then there was one woman who was actually a performer. She sang anti-communist folk songs. I love that part of your book. Janet Green, the Joan Baez of the right. <laughs> I'm just a poor left winger. He The thing I like about the Janet Green thing is that the way that uh, she talks about what she's doing and other people talk about what's so good about what she's doing is so mm -hmm. similar to the, the way that the right talks about so many of their tactics, which is to say the left has been using folk music to spread their <laughs> communist yes. ideology for so long. Now we're going to do the same thing. And right. she's and she's explicit about like, yeah, I kind of try to sing like Joan Baez. <laughs> right. But then Janet Green brings me to yet another type of conservative woman, and that is the spy. Right. Yes. So Marion Miller, who I write about, the Southern California Jewish housewife, she becomes an undercover member of an organization that is a suspected communist front, and she gathers intelligence for the FBI. Right. And then she writes a book about it. What was that book called? Wasn't it I Was a Spy? Yeah, I Was a Spy, colon, The Story of a Brave Housewife. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I wrote in my notes a few times that there's like – there's an element of sort of like snitching as praxis mm -hmm. in, <laughs> in a lot of, in even, in even different eras of this kind of activism. I got a lot of my material from the snitching and all yeah. the reports they would keep on. They were just infiltrating each other like crazy. 
Right. Um, <laughs> and then they would save their reports. And then lo and behold, they're at one of these California universities. I wanted to mention one thing, since you mentioned the bookstores in particular, mm -hmm. things I think I mentioned earlier that I, I felt like your book, the attention to women really helped connect some dots and add some interesting wrinkles to the shaping of the conservative movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the really interesting details is that you mentioned uh, Jane Crosby, who oh, yeah. founded the South Pasadena Americanism Center. Mm -hmm. But that's an example where you show that sometimes accounts of the right and the John Birch Society they're a little simplistic or they miss that it was one of many organizations they were a part of. Mm -hmm. Or it became the new hotness. Or, or it became the new hotness. And so, for example, Jane Crosby, the South Pasadena Americanism Center, you have this great quote from her where she says, it was not a Birch bookstore at all. It right. was just a patriotic bookstore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I, I love that kind of distinction. It's just a patriotic bookstore, but it, it that was one of the interesting wrinkles I thought your book taught me was that actually, you know, the emergence of the John Birch Society, it's you know, was not an isolated event. It built on this kind of network, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the people who were joiners. It was part of that mix. Yes, and again it was where you had many women who themselves would have been like leaders and captains of industry, if it were the, you know, 21st century, had these skills to organize and run a business. And so they'll just open a patriotic bookstore. People will, right. will uh, give them the space to do that in their neighborhoods. So there was something else that Jane said when I brought up Robert Welch and his criticism of Eisenhower um, as being, you know, pro-communist or something. I said to her, Jane, what about that? Did you really think that Eisenhower was a communist? And she rolled her eyes and she's like, yeah, that was a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I realized from that and other conversations that they didn't totally buy in to all of these conspiracy theories. Like they had kind of very, all very different attitudes about what the conspiracy actually was. They were all putting it out there and raising alarms. But, you know, the extent to which they really believed all of this is not easy to pin down. I want to talk about something specific um, from this era that is so useful. And it's the Pasadena controversy, the Pasadena affair. I mean, I couldn't believe reading this part of your book, how familiar it was to the CRT panic. <laughs> I know. You're telling me. I thought I was writing about history. <laughs> the Pasadena Affair is an example, and I'm going to ask you to fill in some of the details there, of a progressive administrator, right, mm -hmm. um, superintendent being seen as a dangerous outsider importing some kind of um, f foreign pedagogy, which is, you know, brainwashing our kids, forcing them to be anti-racist. I mean, basically to be, there's an integration element here, and it is so redolent of what we're going through now. And it becomes this extremely powerful organizing opportunity, right? So um, could you tell us a little bit about what was going on in Pasadena? Sure. It's the early 1950s, and the superintendent's name is Willard Goslin. He's not native to California. He's, I believe he's educated at Columbia. And he moves to Pasadena to basically become the superintendent of this pretty big school district that extends beyond the city itself. 
So he is definitely a progressive. Not only that, but there is this interest at the time in progressive education. You know, we all imagine that as, as coming from the progressive era and John Dewey, but there are now ways in which I guess some educators want to kind of entertain the idea of updating the way that children are taught. But what is weird is that there isn't this kind of organized movement of progressive educators, like, you know, packaging this set of ideas. Instead, the conservative housewives, basically, they latch on to progressive education as what they see as a movement to destroy their children's minds. And so kind of like CRT, when they use that word progressive education, it means a whole set of things to them and what they imagine as being anti-racist education, not just anti-racist, but they would call it communist or pro-communist subversive education. Whereas the teachers and the administrators themselves were, were like, well, yeah, we're, we're influenced by the progressive education movement, but it's not as if anybody is adopting these methods wholesale. They're just kind of bringing them into discussions, um, workshops, you know, do we want to educate the whole child? How do we do that, right? Kind of the way in which critical race theory makes its appearance in the 21st century, you have people at universities who adopt this kind of conceptual approach to studying structural racism. And then their critics on the right see it as a conspiracy theory. Now, progressive education, obviously, it came to mean in the 50s, integration also. So Willard Gosselin was, even before Brown versus Board of Education, he was doing away with practices that allowed white families to keep their children in white schools in Pasadena. And this scared folks in those suburbs because they really did believe that there was something communist about that. Also, he was bringing people together to understand each other's cultures, ethnic cultures. So they saw this as part of the same package that he's trying to integrate and racially mix children. And so they did, they targeted, they, they managed to get him fired right. in Pasadena. And that's just one example. Right. It happened over and over again. Yeah. It's also the other thing that's so similar is this idea that these educators are getting in between the parents and their children, that they're violating what you call the home rule, right? Right. And that they're trying to get at the children's minds um, in a way that yeah. should be the exclusive purview of mothers. Yes. And that's also because of the way that people came to understand brainwashing in the 1950s. <laughs> um, Matt wants to so talk to you about brainwashing, I think. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, we Go can on. talk about mm -hmm. that. But in terms of Pasadena, because he established summer camps, they thought this was one of the ways that progressive educators sought to influence the thinking of children that countered the influence of the home. So uh, we're going to get them away by, you know, keeping them here in the summertime and Oh, social studies, right? Why are they learning social studies? Why why are they trying to take our children away from us and right. brainwash them? Uh, I definitely want to get to uh, brainwashing and sure. the place of psychiatry in 
these women's imaginations. But one particular thing while we're on education, I wanted to to ask about was their fixation on UNESCO. Yeah. What was going on? So I grew up a fundamentalist Christian uh-huh. that I think was, you know, forged in some of this time period, like when my pastor growing up would have been coming into his own. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and so there, the UN was like an odd source of conspiracy theories, even mm-hmm. when I was growing up, especially about the end of the world. And the Antichrist would probably be, I was taught this growing up, probably the Secretary General of the UN, yeah. if, it, if it wasn't the Pope, wow. right? But why were they so fixated on UNESCO? Well, two, I would say UNESCO, you know, the United Nations Educational Science and Cultural Organization put together the UN and children. And so for them, <laughs> those were two flags that went up that they actually they had to, to go after. But in the 1950s, UNESCO produced curricular materials meant to promote peace and world understanding that teachers could use, could bring into their classrooms. And so conspiracy theorists on the right saw this as a means by which this internationalist organization that they saw as communist was channeling these dangerous ideas into elementary school classrooms. And so that's why they saw UNESCO as being so insidious because they were targeting the minds of the youngest. It's also very much like the way you hear people talk about critical race theory today. You know, it's so bad because it's these elite thinkers at universities going after the most vulnerable. Yes. And I think that emphasis on, well, you know, kind of poisoning the minds of children, mm-hmm. you know, brainwashing yeah. uh, gets us to the role of psychiatry in your book and, you know, kind of related fields, social science, but, you know, psychology and psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about that. And it's reflected in the structure of your book. So for listeners, you know, we described the way women in post-war Los Angeles, what they were doing, their activities, how they were organizing and communing with each other, what they were up to. And then you move to this chapter on schools. And then you move to this chapter about um, Siberia, USA, Mm -hmm. which is uh, basically before Alaska was a state, the federal government held these hearings about providing money for mental health facilities in what was then a territory, right? Mm-hmm. And a woman named Stephanie Williams actually testified before the Senate Subcommittee on Territories and Insular Affairs. Uh, this is in 1956. Mm-hmm. And the fear was what? That that would become our Siberia where we diagnosed anti-communists which was specifically mentioned as a possibly being considered a mental disease by Williams, right? Mm-hmm. A Harvard psychologist had you know, referenced that or something, and it found its way into some part of the proposed bill or legislation. And this was like a, a panic, right? That this is where we would send our kind of political prisoners. Yeah, they really, they believed that this bill, this Alaska mental health bill would establish a gulag in Alaska, that it really wasn't meant to be a psychiatric facility. And maybe these poor senators in Washington didn't really understand that. They didn't read the bill as closely as as women really could. And so they didn't understand how subversives were using the legislative process to create a prison camp in Alaska. (laughs) Uh, So there's that, the, the conspiracy about the prison camp. 
but it also gets at the ways that they were deeply afraid of how anti-communism was being diagnosed as a disease, because in fact, that was happening. People saw them as crazy and people were talking about conservatives as being some kind of pathological condition. I mean, because this was the era of, say, Richard Hofstetter's paranoid style, anti-intellectual American life, Mm -hmm. drawing on like studies of authoritarian personalities, including by Adorno, right? And so this was in the air. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating to like such a hallmark of the brief era of liberal hegemony in American life that this would be the case because just like 10, 20 years later, black activists would be being institutionalized with the so-called yeah. protest psychosis for uh you know fighting against uh white supremacy uh but it mm-hmm. but it's but it's not it's not untrue that for that there was this moment where conservatism was pathologized more than liberalism or progressivism yeah one of the great aha moments i had reading your book was how much the critique of social science and psychiatry held everything together, Mm. right? Because you can look at the decision in Brown v. Board of Education, where it draws on social science, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you can look at the role of maybe, you know, psychiatry and psychology in, you know, certain pedagogical recommendations or how to evaluate students and children. And then you see how it factors into this panic over the American gulag in, in the American Siberia, in Alaska. And you can see how schools, again, hold everything together, but also the place of psychiatry and psychology and social science. It felt like I understood how seemingly disparate causes or political events could somehow be connected in the minds of these activists because there was like this through line of the perniciousness of social science and psychiatry. Is that right? Did I read you right? You did. You read me right. The other thing I would add to it, though, is it became a means by which to not talk about race. Yeah. So they were absolutely convinced that nothing that they did had anything to do with racism or segregation or their fears of integrating black and white people. They believed that everybody that they went after was using race as a way to subvert society. So they, they, they use that word a lot, subversion or disorder, right? That what was happening in society was really dangerous because it was destabilizing society. And so by talking about people's minds, by talking about education and communism and making it about this attempt to subvert society, there's just no way in their minds it could really be about race discrimination or segregation. They just didn't believe, honestly believe that these were problems. Right. I think Matthew Lasseter's concept of colorblind conservatism is is the best way to capture this. You know, Lasseter was talking about the 70s and, and later when really this is a, an early form of colorblind conservatism. They find a way to convince themselves and each other that they are not racist. And part of it too is right that by taking a a psychiatric or psychological approach, that also implied that like racism was being perpetuated by what families would pass on, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, like how how did racist views, how were they transmitted generationally? Well, you Mm -hmm. look to the family. And so, you know, the kind of subverting the family and anti-racism 
they were linked in some ways, right, by yes. this this particular aspect of thinking about how we develop our ideas and prejudices develop, mm-hmm. where they come from. Right. That's That was a huge thing, it seemed, that they felt that they were being attacked by in their parenting and that there was something wrong with the way they were raising their children because psychologists were telling them, were telling the liberal media that these white families were raising little racists. And right. that produced this really rich ground on which to say, these psychiatrists are telling me how to raise my family without having to interrogate, you know, do I have racist views? Am I participating in a racist society? Because the, because the complaint, the grievance becomes high-minded bureaucrats and, and, and university-educated nitwits, mm-hmm. eggheads, telling me how to raise my kids. Not just that, they were pathologizing right-wing Path- motherhood. Right, yes. Right, uh-huh. they became, these mothers became a type, a personality type, Right. So yes, they were deeply disturbed by that. And to a certain extent, this is where it gets weird. They were right about that. The way yeah. in which momism and liberal psychologists were putting a lot into this personality type of right. the overbearing conservative mother. Right. Reducing it, and this is not unfamiliar <laughs> even now, <laughs> reducing this structural phenomenon, which is pervaded by prejudiced instincts on the part mm-hmm. of individuals, but also by a society which perpetuates a certain racial caste system that has all kinds of benefits for certain kinds of people in society, and mm-hmm. individualizing it into, oh, it's overbearing mothers who are causing this. Yeah, raising these little Nazis. And I thought... You know, to take it one step further, even uh, very early in the book, you talk about the way gender ideology and statism came together in the cohering of conservatism. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the things your book really taught me. And it made a lot of sense was the way you, you know, the anti-statism of the 1920s you describe as being very economic and financial. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how did anti-statism broaden into a more populist, broader movement? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, kind of you can see as we've talked about the details of some of this, how that worked. Right. Mm-hmm. So anti-statism became not just about intervening in the economy, but reaching down the mm-hmm. state through experts like psychiatrists and, you know, mm-hmm. reaching down into the family to try to disrupt. But I, I think without attentiveness to these women you describe and interview and give accounts of in your book, I just feel like I didn't understand that Yeah, uh, as well as I did after reading your book because of the way these women's activism was, their connecting role or, or their role in ha- helping conservatism cohere. It really made a lot of sense to me by the end of the book. Well, thank you for noticing that. Also, (laughs) what I'm trying to point out uh, is that it's not just where you see that and that gender ideology. I'm I'm making the case that women brought this to the movement, that this is their contribution, that women brought family. And that's why I explore like the, the language of conservative womanhood, how men are writing about women conservative intellectuals. At the end of the book, yeah. Because they're kind of, they are buying this idea that's coming from women about the importance of family as protection against the state. It's one of the things that you, that you say that's so, comp- that's so interesting in that, in that chapter, which is that the conservative movement led by men didn't exactly try to attract women to its ranks so much as mm-hmm. that women joined it and shaped it 
And then these men had to give an account of of why women were so crucial to the project that they were yeah. were participating in, and that and the language in which they gave that account was language that they got from the women, <laughs> yeah, to some degree. Yeah, they might not be at the highest level of the Republican National Committee at that point, but they're at all the conventions. Yeah, they had to be reckoned with. They forced themselves in there. Yeah, there's a little book you mentioned. I I was so disappointed in myself for forgetting about this. But Russell Kirk yes. wrote a book called What the Intelligent Woman's Guide to Conservatism. Yes. Yeah. I was just like, damn it, I can't believe I haven't tracked down this little book yet. I really want to read it. But we haven't done our full Russell Kirk episode <laughs> yet, so No, no, we can we can fold that in. So I thank you for reminding me about that book. But I feel like that was a great example of the kind of phenomenon Sam just described. Well and and you have you have Kirk acknowledging that uh, most of our voluntary organizations which support our established society of justice and order and liberty are kept vigorous by American women. And then further down you have him sort of explaining why it is, what is about women? What is it about their instincts and intuitions that make them such good conservative activists? And he says, it's something about, and this is the quote, attachment to hard realities. It has something to do with their social principles and their realization of the need to genuine security has something to do with it. And it has their practical understanding of the worth of the family and community. And so has the instinctive knowledge that society is not a machine for living, but rather a spiritual thing founded upon love. Which, um, you know, I don't know how much we want to uh, give credence to Russell Kirk's or anybody else's gender essentialism, but it is very interesting to hear in the accounts of someone like Russell Kirk, you know, one of the great thinkers of the Mm post-war conservative movement, trying to identify in this particular gender ideology or ideas about what womanhood consists of, the way that that overlaps with his conservatism. Yeah, you. I love that quote. I'm really glad that that you found that one because um, I think it really captures the way how women thought about themselves in the movement and their importance to movement, and then how men justified their influence. Yeah, you know, I don't think that got tons of circulation, but what you see there, you see in so many other pieces of literature and speeches throughout the movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, before we close out, there is one, I think this leads us to one thing I really wanted to ask you about because 30 episodes ago now, back before the Democratic primary voting even started, we had on Rebecca Traister Mm -hmm. to talk about kind of women in politics. We talked a lot about Elizabeth Warren. That's how long ago it was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But one thing we kind of started to get into, but I thought your book addressed specifically was just like with any group of people, women, African-Americans, others who we think should be progressive, mm-hmm. <laughs> conservative women aren't. So they defy our expectations in that way. And, you know, sometimes that's labeled a form of false consciousness. Yeah. Right. That like uh, they, they don't really understand what they're doing or their, you what know, their interests um, are or what their true interests are. Yes. And you kind of explicitly reject that mode of analysis in this book. I thought that was a really important point. And I wondered if you could speak a little more to that, you know, why you reject it and kind of what your approach was that was different. That's how I conclude the book. So thank you. And I put it in there because when I was first presenting my research, people would often use the word false consciousness, or they would point out how paradoxical their activism was, or 
aren't they just deluding themselves? Aren't they learning to love the bars of their cage? Yeah. Like, don't they, <laughs> right? They want one thing, but then they say they want another thing, right? And so it occurred to me that you can believe that, but in reality, you know, that's kind of what everybody does. There's always paradoxes that have to be balanced. And I feel like we have a tendency as scholars to point that out, the paradoxes and the contradictions of the people who we want to criticize, right? And that's how we kind of, that we manage to knock down their beliefs and the things that they say by pointing out what just doesn't stand up. When in reality, that's what we all do all the time. Uh, Matt's going to be annoyed, but we did an episode about Freud and politics. And one of the big takeaways is these paradoxes, these, mm -hmm. these, these apparent uh, hypocrisies, the, mm -hmm. these are the things that provide meaning. These are precisely the things that people need. The stories that people are telling themselves about their political activism, and their engagement in the world are mm -hmm. the stories that give their life meaning and that make uh, otherwise unbearable contradictions bearable. So it's really not the contradiction, which is the problem, f certainly not going to convince anybody that they're wrong. The existence mm -hmm. of the contradiction is is really solving a problem <laughs> for right. <them. laughs> you know, yeah. another way to put that, and I'm stealing this from Matthew Lasseter, you know, someone brought this to his attention again. He said, really, that's where the, the questioning starts. Not that someone con contradicts themselves. It's that we have to start with that question of why and not simply shut it down and dismiss the discussion with that observation of contradiction. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I agree. And that certainly was, for listeners, I think the complexity and nuance of your book is that you take that approach, you know, yeah. and you don't look down on the people you're writing about mm -hmm. uh, in a certain way. And uh, again, you, I think very consistently and patiently, you know, try to explain, you know, what work the paradoxes were doing for them mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or how they tried to hold them together rather than just pointing at it and saying, see, false consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> right. I want to point out with that, some people have called this empathetic, that I'm hmm. empathizing with my subjects, but I really don't agree with that. I, that really wasn't my point uh, is for you to feel their pain. It's more to basically expose their way of thinking, try and open up what's co going on inside there so that you can see the way they put two and two together to try and yeah. dissect the logic and to actually call it that a kind of logic. Yes. Yes. That's a great phrase, a kind of logic. Yes. <laughs> Not just uh, irritable mental gestures then. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Michelle. I think we should uh, close it out. You've been extremely generous with your time. I we're, have we're to really tell grateful. you, I've never, I, I mean, how old is this book now? No one has done an interview like that. I don't know anybody who read my book so closely and asked questions like, like this. So I am so grateful. I had no idea what I was putting into here. That was really fantastic. Jesse, you have to edit this out. We can't possibly leave it in. <laughs> I was about to say, Matt, you're still recording, right? <laughs> uh, well, thank you. It was our pleasure. Uh, listeners, again, Mothers of Conservatism, Women in the Post-War Right by Michelle M. Nickerson, 2012 Princeton University Press. It was one of the best books I've read on the right in a long time. And uh, as listeners know, Sam and I have read a lot of them. So thank you so much, Michelle. 
My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks. Thank you.